This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. This podcast is Shareable. I'm your host, Jeff Gibbard, commonly known as the world's most handsome strategist and professional speaker. I'm also a superhero. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single Shareable episode. And that's it. That's the intro. Short and sweet. Let's get to the show. Today's guest on Shareable, his name is Rick Maurer, and he is a speaker, an author, a consultant, and an expert on helping leaders to avoid resistance to change. He's published a book called Beyond the Wall of Resistance in the 90s, and since then has been sought out by like the Wall Street Journal, CNBC, NBC Nightly News, Fortune, a bunch of others. And some of the largest companies in the world ask for his advice on ways to avoid resistance to change and ways to build strong support for change and other big projects. Something I'm very excited about, change management, leadership, getting people on board, loving it all. Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on Shareable. Thanks, Jeff. It's good to be here. Thanks, man. Uh, so I've I've done some pretty extensive looking into you. I've looked over kind of like your uh, your various different projects and things you work on, and uh, I want to dig into a couple of those things. Yeah. Uh, some things I couldn't find on you that I'm actually uh, extremely curious about, and um, probably something I don't know has been covered uh, in other places where people may have seen you. But I'm actually curious about what your let me see how to say this what's your deal, right? Like, what is your, what's, like, what's your driving purpose behind what it is that you're doing? So, so before we even get into that, uh, actually, before you answer that question, uh, I introduced you, I told a little bit about what you do. Can you give your own version of like, who are you and what do you do? So like, we're setting the context for this follow-up question, which is, I want to know why you do it. So first tell people like the, the, what do you sure. do on a, in a very practical way? Sure thing. I, all of my work, I'm a consultant. Um, all of my work focuses on two questions, which is why do people support us? Why do they resist us? Period. So I get called in to advise leaders and planning teams when they say we have really got to get a lot of people behind this. We need the energy, the forward momentum, and we're afraid that's not going to happen. Can you give us some advice? And I do not come in and do it for them. I'm not a hero. You know, I'm working behind the scenes and sometimes in really short bursts saying, hey, you know, you ought to look at it this way or you're about to shoot yourself in the foot if you do it that way. And so I, I give them some models that I think are pretty easy to use and pretty simple, but also quite often get to the heart of, oh, that's why we get into trouble. So got it. OK, yeah. so now let's dig into that, because there's a lot of different ways you could do that exact type of work. That could be for a lot of different reasons. So why right. do you do this? Like, what are you out to change in the world by doing this? Are you trying to help certain types of organizations or people? Are you trying to get certain types of projects unstuck? Are you just amazed by the the innate <laughs> uh, ability of people to overcome obstacles? Like, what's your what's your <laughs> deal? Yeah, what is my deal? You know, I it, at the core. Uh, I really want people to treat each other decently at work. You know, and what, um, unfortunately, that can't be my slogan, for, but, but, but I work best with clients who say, yeah, we want to do that better. So I'm not an evangelist. I'm not out trying to convert people. Like there was a guy named Chainsaw Al Dunlap. He used to head Sunbeam. I mean, his nickname, he got that terrible nickname because he would just downsize. He was like, he had a chainsaw. He would never, ever have hired me in a million years, but I'm looking for people who say, yeah, I want to do this better because it's really tough on these people. Are there ways to get stuff done and in a way that we can treat each other with respect and dignity? So that's, that really is the core of what I do. 
Do you have any sort of like underlying, um, cause I, I want to dig into like how you do the work you do. I want to talk a little bit about the specifics yeah. of, of what you do with companies, your strategies, your kind of approach to things, but do you have like an underlying like guiding philosophy of any sort? Like, like for instance, I, I would imagine the way that you just described it, there's sort of an inherent belief that maybe not all people are good, but if all people are good, they can make change, right? Like, is there, <laughs> is, is there any sort of like an underlying belief that you have that I think that, that you think equips you to do this work effectively? Hmm. I, you're asking very good questions, by the way. Um, I don't believe that everybody's inherently good, unfortunately. I don't know that everybody's inherently bad either. But I yeah. think that we as people have the capacity to be better with each other. Uh, and I think too often, I don't know, the pace of what goes on, uh, the size of organizations get us to go, well, the only way is we got to keep moving. We got to do this. We got to you know, do that. And we leave a trail of bodies in our wake. And I, uh, and what I truly believe is that we can do that better, still be as productive, uh, maybe even more productive, but in ways that people say, wow, I love working here. Uh, can I tell you a quick story? Yeah, absolutely. And by the yeah. way, you're, you're absolutely uh, singing my favorite song uh, about like loving where you work. I have a book coming out in January called The Lovable Leader, and it's all wow. about building organizations on uh, trust, you know, respect and yeah. kindness. You know? Wow. Cool. That, I look forward to that book, by yeah. the way. So um, um, tell me the story. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. A number of years ago, I used to do some teaching for Center for Creative Leadership. And in one of the programs, uh, we would teach motivation, all the research on motivation at work, and then theories of leadership in that. And one time before I went into the theories, I said, Hey, how about this? I'm a jazz musician at heart. So I will make stuff up in the moment. I mean, it just, it works for me. And I said, Hey, everybody just take a sheet of paper. Just think about a job that you've had sometime in your life that you just loved, you know, and it could have been, you know, a lifeguard in high school, or it could be anything. And then don't, then just write down, you know, brainstorm, what, what was it about that job you love so much? And then I would say, all right, so what were some of those things? And I asked people not to identify the job right away. And I kept hearing the same kind of things like the work was important. I really felt valued. I loved the people I worked with. I could see, I could see the results of that, things like that. Money came up every once in a while, but usually it didn't come up as that kind of motivator. And then I'd say, well, what was the job you had? And sometimes people would say, well, I'm an engineer. It's the job I have right now. Uh, <clears throat> I remember one time there was a guy, it may have been a different program, that he had worked for uh, Admiral Jaime Rickover in the nuclear submarine uh, service. Rickover was responsible for that. And he was a, apparently a really tough guy to work for, not a touchy-feely guy. But he said, I got to do something that nobody else in the world was doing. You know, and, and I remember one time a guy said, I was a roadie with the Grateful Dead. Now, his reasons were a little different than some of the others, and I can't mention them here. But, but what was interesting is that whether it was, it's the job I have now or as a summer lifeguard or this or that, the things that were important were kind of key human things that ought to be there in the jobs that you and I are doing right now. So one of the things I'll say to clients is, look, if you've had a job like that, Take a look at this meetings you're going into on Monday. Is that there? Are people going to, you know, be energized? Are they going to feel respected? I mean, so it's not it's not magic. It's really trying to strip away some of the stuff and say, you know what it is. 
if you've ever had any kind of job you've liked, you know what it is. So that's. I, so I'm a hundred percent on board with that. And I would imagine if, you know, if I were to pull people in my life, you literally put anybody and you pull enough people and you ask, what do you like about work? You're probably going to get the same, like 10 to 20 things that are in a category of like, it's just really nice to be here. And like, people are nice to one another <laughs> and kind, treat each other with respect. I get to do work that I care about and I feel value. And I feel it's like literally all human stuff. Right. Yes. And yet, and yet I think we can all agree. That's not the standard, right? If it was you and I wouldn't have jobs, we wouldn't be writing books. <laughs> we wouldn't be out talking to people because everything would be hunky dory and perfect, but it's not. Yeah. So I think the thing that you know, that I struggle with when I think about the work that, that I do. And when I, you know, I read about and I look at the sort of things that you're doing, the thing I think to myself uh, with the story you had is just like, okay, great. We know these things. Well, how do we turn around a sinking ship? How do we turn around a place mm. where the culture is not good, where the management doesn't have any sort of leadership training at all and may be really difficult to work with? Mm -hmm. And it's like, can you, you know, you mentioned the nuclear submarine program guy and like he's difficult to work with, but you get to work on something that nobody else in the world is. Well, how many people get the opportunity to work on something that nobody else is? Right. It's very right. rare, right? So it's like you have to have these conditions to make an environment where people enjoy coming to work or where they feel valued. And sometimes so many of those are not present. And the action, uh, the, the, the intention to turn all of that around requires like basically like a wholesale, like you got to like burn the wheat field down and replant. How do you how do you start that process once you've gone into an organization? Like, is there a certain level at which you go, okay, well, it's just too bad. There's nothing you can turn around. Do you believe in incremental change? Do you feel in wholesale change? Like, mm -hmm. I, I think that's the thing that I struggle with most is like, yeah. how do you approach these pro the problems that are so big and make it better? Yeah. I've, in recent years, the last two, three years, I've been asking potential clients a couple questions before I start to work with them. And the first one is scale of one to five. How important is it for you to build support for whatever you're working on? And any answer is okay, but four or five, which are the high scores, are ones that say, I think we can work together. I think I have something that I can do to help you. If it's lower than that, you still might be really productive and, and that and the shareholders are happy, but Nothing that I say is going to be particularly helpful. But the second question, which often gets people to kind of look and laugh and uh, turn away, I'll say, scale of one to five, how willing are you to be influenced by the people you're trying to influence? Like being influenced mm. back. Yes. And yeah. yeah. And if they go, oh, yeah, great question, a five, then I go, I think we can work together. Mm -hmm. But if they say, no, you know, you can't trust those people, da, 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 I go, well, you know, I don't think I can help. Um, you know, I'd like to, but uh, I, I can't, I frankly can't, I can't help if people are hiring me just because they, so they can say, well, we hired Rick Maurer, he's written some books, and that didn't even work. And I've had people do that. I know some of the big consulting companies have said they didn't want to use us. They just wanted to say, well, we, we hired the, the biggest consulting company we in the world, the box. Yeah. we check the box. So I can't, you know, uh, maybe somebody with more skills than me could do that. I can't, I need to, first of all, I need to work with the people who say, I need this. And they don't have to be skilled at it. They just have to say, have a mindset of, I need this. And then I don't care what level they're at. I mean, I can work with them. I mean, they can have more impact on an organization, the higher up they are, of course. But I've worked with supervisors and middle managers and i've worked with ceos i mean it's just they're people you yeah. know they're just like well, you and me 
I totally get that. Let's lay out some clues for those listening who may be in a position where they have um, an organization where, you know, it, it's the, the the general sort of organization. It's a mixed bag, right? You, like, you've got mm-hmm. some good, you've got some bad. Uh, I think that the truly toxic, awful workplaces, they're, they're probably fewer and far between just as much as like the truly outstanding workplaces. I think everything is probably in the middle, right? There's a little bit of work mm-hmm. to be done. So you started off by saying that there are really two questions that you tend to answer, which is why do people support us and why do people resist our ideas? Mm-hmm. I want to take those two piece by piece because I think if we start to outline some of those things, people who are listening may be able to start thinking about their own organization and thinking about what are some of the things that might be lacking in that support? And then in the resistance, what are some of the reasons that we might be causing resistance in our organization? I I think the ideal situation is obviously the resistance to the ideas breaks down across everything, up, down, left, right in an organization. Mm -hmm. And there's more support for ideas, alignment, getting people in the same direction, obviously very important. So let's take those bit by bit. Let's talk about support. Why in in your work, in your estimation, your philosophy, why do people support one another? Okay. Um, my answer to that is actually going to combine resistance into it. I Here's what I believe about- Two for about, one here. Yeah, two for one. Yeah. It's, it's and all of that, whether it's support or resistance, it's simply energy. And that energy is always alive. And sometimes it's working for us. Sometimes it's working against us. But we need to understand that that potential is always there. And so I can say, I'll give you an example. I was working with a client and they were saying, oh, we get this resistance with these stakeholders, da, 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 da. And I just drew a horizontal line on the whiteboard. And I said, whoa, way over here, that's support. Way over here is resistance. What are you going to need from them? And I had no words there to define it or anything. And they said, oh, we need them way up there and pretty high on support. And I'll say, well, what does that look like? Well, they got to be willing to take it on. They got to be leaders for this. They've got it. And they were really clear. And I said, so imagine that's resistance down at the other end. Where's their energy? Where do you think it's going to be? Oh, it's going to be way over there on the other side. So now you see this gap. So I connected the that those gaps from, from resistance support. And I said, see that gap? That's where the work is. So what we need to understand is basically, why do people support us? Why do they resistance is a single question. So with that, I can tell you what I, what I think about it. Um, the, and I call them levels. I wish I'd never done that because it sounds like if I do level one, I check it off. Do level two, I check it off. In truth, it just means level one is the easiest one to work with, but they're all alive always. And the first one is that people get it. They understand what we're talking about. So it's just cognitive. I mean, right now, I know that your listeners can't see us, but they can, but you and I are nodding each other, at nodding when the other one is speaking. Mm-hmm. So I'm paying attention to that. If you'd been rolling your eyes or say, well, while he's talking, I'm going to go get a cup of coffee, that would be a signal that maybe I wasn't getting through. But, but what's important is that our message is clear, and that's the easiest one to deal with. PowerPoint was invented for level one. Newsletters were invented for level one. And the mistake we make sometimes is that we assume that the reason people are resisting is because they don't understand. And so we keep explaining it over and over again. And what we do is people now start saying, I understand it completely. This guy thinks I'm an idiot. So if clearly, if people don't understand it, then you've got to give information in a language that they can get it. You know, Before we that, move on to level yeah. two, I want to, can we stay on level one for a yeah. Actually, how many levels are there? Three. Okay, cool. So let, I actually want to make sure that we spend some time in each Perfect. Of them because I think the example you gave 
about us on the podcast. You know, mm-hmm. we have listeners right now. It's all audio. But you and I are on a video chat together. And we're capturing the audio. And you mentioned my body language, basically, mm-hmm. is what you were saying. When you when you stay in this level one and you make sure that somebody understands what you're talking about, how deep down the rabbit hole do you go there in that? Because you mentioned that sometimes people continually explain when maybe somebody already understands. So how do you, how do you, it, it, you said it's the easiest to approach, but yeah. how do you make sure that you're staying in level one of, of the support resistance type work? How do you stay in that level one and make sure that people are getting it without being overbearing about it and treating them as if maybe they're idiots and don't understand it versus not giving enough information. Right. What are some of the things that you recommend leaders do to make sure that they're kind of hitting sure. squarely in the bullseye? Good. I really like, I really like that question. Uh, and by the way, and I, I don't hear that question very often. So I'm, you know, I'm not blowing smoke here. This really is a good question. Um, I would say to that leader, just like I would say it to me is I might say, you know, what I'm explaining right now, I think is really important. I need to, I need, I need to hear your reactions. Like for, so let's just start, where am I being unclear? So invite people, to, you know, by saying, hey, where am I not being clear? Mm-hmm. To find, and if people say, well, no, no, I get it. I, and I say, well, would somebody just say it back to me? Because I really want to, I really, you know, because sometimes, you know, people will say, man, you, Rick, you use big words or you do this or that or whatever. You can joke around with it, but you're tr- you need a feedback loop. Yeah. You know, to know that. And it doesn't it, and it doesn't have to be demeaning. It can be it can be you can use yourself as like, hey, you know, my wife tells me I talk too much. So I just want to stop right here and see, you know, and but you can do something just to, to do that reality check. Yeah, so. I actually really like what you just said there, because I think there's a there's a subtle nuance here. Language and, and tone and everything are so important, especially in leadership. And I, and I think something that you did there that I just want to call out that I think is really, really brilliant. And I would recommend for people that are doing this exercise. It's what I would call closing the loop, right? And the way that you did it was self-effacing, self-deprecating to a certain extent, because by turning it on me saying, hey, listen, I know that I just explained that. And I know you're all saying that you get it, but just so that I'm clear, because I sometimes feel uncertain about my ability to communicate what we're all about. If somebody could just say it back to me, that would make me feel so much Yep. So much, so much more uh, certain about things, make me feel more clear about things. Yeah. So you're not saying like, Hey, idiots prove to me that you, you <laughs> no, heard what I said. Exactly. Right? That's not going to be particularly effective. Yeah. Um, but, but um, something that I, you know, I hear a lot of really, really, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I, I read a lot of books and sometimes I listen to audiobooks. And one thing that I've noticed from a lot of like really, really great communicators is their tendency when speaking to an audience or speaking to a small group to say, does that make sense? It, yeah. So is what I'm saying clear or are we all on the same page about that? Like mm-hmm. right now, do me a favor. Like if you're not getting something I'm saying, please let me know because I want to make sure that we, we address it before we move forward. Cause it's really important. That we're all on the same page, right? Like yep. that sort of language and communication, I think is so critical yeah. to doing that level one stuff properly is making sure you don't progress to the next one until you make sure you're out of level one with everybody on the same page and not feeling like threatened by, by being called out, but instead, you know, doing it for the, for the sake of the team. Yep. Good. Perfect. So take me a level two then. All right. Um, so level two is a favorable emotional reaction. And we don't use the word emotional much at work, but what it means is I'm excited. I'm leaning in. I'm, I'm anticipating. I want to know. I want to know more. So that goes right back to level one. And here I am in the audience. I want to know more what Jeff has to say. 
That's mm-hmm. a signal that level one is working. So now level one and level two are working together because what you need if you're presenting something is you need people to be interested, excited, willing to volunteer. And that's all the emotional part of it. And often our meetings are these dry level one affairs go, yeah, yeah, I understand what you're saying, Jeff. Yeah. As versus like, whoa, can you go back to that last slide? I got a question about this. That sounds really exciting. You know, so the, the positive side of this level two is exactly what you need. And it's where a lot of projects fall down because we sap the energy out of projects and we just have to-do lists. I remember going into a meeting with, with an executive and he said, oh yeah, this is going to be one of those, just fill out the forms and, and set up some priorities, right? You know, and you could just feel the sarcasm yeah. dripping from his mouth. And too many meetings are exactly like that. When we, we, we could be doing stuff, one of the things I talk about, and uh, I have this new book called Seizing Moments of Possibility, is the idea is there's so many places where we can engage people as human beings and we miss them because we're so intent on getting our message across and not even paying attention to our audience. So let's, let's pause on that because you said something interesting there. You said seizing moments of possibility. Yeah. Made me kind of like electrified me a little bit. So I want to play there and I want to stay in level two because there's two things in, in this level two that you kind of brought up. One is recognizing the opportunity to seize on a moment of possibility. So I definitely want to talk about that. But the other thing I want to talk about is how, strategically, tactically, like just how do you go about, how do you recommend people go about inspiring people to be interested in whatever the hell you're talking about? Because what we're talking about here is like, sometimes you literally just need to communicate something dry, boring, stupid. It's a dumb project that like we have to do for one reason and a client asks for it. Nobody's excited about it. So like the, the, the ability to get people geared up to do a thing, to get mm-hmm. them excited about being on board on a project that can't just happen in that singular moment. Mm-mm. Like you have to lay the groundwork for that long before that moment where you're asking somebody to do something that they don't want to do and for them to even be excited about it. So right. I was hoping you could kind of paint the picture for me a little bit of how you like, how you, um, I guess the road to level two, like mm-hmm. the, the road <laughs> to level two where you can have people who are who are predispos- predisposed to be excited about a thing that we're talking about in whatever this meeting is or this situation. And then within that, if you can talk at all about seizing those moments of possibility as part of that, that would also be, I think, a a helpful thing for you to talk about. Okay. If you don't mind, let me just spend a minute talking about level three, because it'll help me answer the question you're asked. Okay. Absolutely. All right. So level one is people get it. Level two is they, they like it. And level three is they have trust and confidence in you. And so if you walk in a room, with and they they trust you they know that you're you know that you know what you're doing that you care about the projects you know you care about the people and you say folks we got this one thing we got to do over the next two months i'm not wild about it but we got to do it when trust is high people will go okay i mean not not 100 percent of the time but a lot of the time because the trust is already there but if it's every time and it's it's this bait and switch thing, you know, I go, no, 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 no. We heard Rick say that two months ago and a year ago. Remember he said it, you know, that it's a problem. So that trust thing is actually it's core to all of that. In fact, if I don't if you don't trust me and I come walking in and I start talking right away at level one, my taking in information is skewered because I'm listening through it 
listening to it through a filter going, all right, what does he really mean here? You know, and I don't know if it's going to be good for me because I've got all that history with this guy, you know, so they all work together. So Mm -hmm. interesting, because when you first mentioned level one, level two, level three, I thought of it probably how many people listening right now are would be thinking of it. Right. So if you're following along with us right now, you probably thought level one was like the first step on a staircase. Level two is the second and level three is the third. But as you, as you said, the third level, it made me actually flip them right to my, my thinking of it was that you actually have to have the trust first before anyone's going to get excited and even pay attention to the thing that's informational. So it's almost like it works in the two directions, or maybe you have it drawn out in some diagram where they actually work cyclically together or intertwined something. I do. I, in fact, like I said, I said, I wish I had never called them levels for exactly the reason you're saying. Um, But what I have, and I had an artist do this for uh, a book I wrote in the nineties is I have three intersecting circles and the circles are sloppy. So it shows tension among the three, Mm -hmm. you know? And so one circle is level one, level two, level three. And the idea is that all three have an impact on each other. So something that's working well in one level can have a positive impact on the others and vice versa, but they're always alive and they're always feeding off of each other. So that's the way that I describe it. I wish I I would take, I would quit using the word uh, levels, except I've got so much in print and so many people have written about my stuff that I'm just stuck with it. It's a bad choice of words. But, but I do, uh, I do appreciate that. Um, that those three really work it bi-directionally, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, mm-hmm. Cause you need to go from level one to level two to level three, but you need yeah. level three for level two and level one. So it's interesting yeah. that they kind of work in those two directions. Yes. So, okay. So that kind I think that answered my question about um, like, how do you get people excited? Because I think mm-hmm. I, I agree with you hundred percent. If you have that uh, core trust yeah. in, in the team, and you're able to get people to be more excited about an idea. And I would, I would probably also um, assume that there's something around that you, like you mentioned in the, the polling of people where like people said, Oh, like my work has meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. I'd imagine the more uh, aspirational, the, the destination that we're going to is the more excited you can get people to even take on whatever that is. So yeah, uh, I'd imagine that's another part of it, but you mentioned, um, seizing moments of possibility. I want yes. to make sure that we don't lose that. Okay. What did you mean by that? What I mean is there are, on, let's say in the life of a project or a big change, there are tons of places where we're going to be engaging with other individuals and other groups who are going to need to support this. And maybe it's a weekly conference call. Maybe it's part of the monthly agenda. Maybe it's a planning meeting. It's just tons and tons of stuff goes on. And I think every one of those is an opportunity to, to infuse some life into what's going on. Even if it's we're walking down the hall together and you say, hey, how's the project going? There's, I've got an opportunity to not just bore you to tears, but to actually engage you in a conversation. Um, and, and let me just give a couple of really quick examples. I have a friend who's a scientist and he said where he works when he makes presentations to the other scientists for them to say, hey, yeah, you ought to go ahead with that. He said, I have to use PowerPoint because it's, it's the signal here that you've actually prepared. He said, I know that's ridiculous, but I've got to do it. And he knew how much I don't like PowerPoint as a tool to influence because it puts people to sleep. And he called me one day and he said, I got it. I figured it out. He said, I've had this presentation 
And basically a presentation like that would typically be about 50 slides. I, got, I thought, what's the minimum number of slides I could use and get the point across? He said it was five. But he said, here's what happened. He said, so the same group of scientists, the same meeting room, the same time we always meet, the same bad coffee, everything was the same, but I just used five slides. And he said, what happened is I covered everything, but now there was just so much more space for conversation and people started getting involved. And by the end of it, they were engaged with me on what I was talking about rather than sitting quietly. So it was a really simple kind of tweak, if you will, mm -hmm. that could bring energy kind of into the room. I mean, I just, I love the example because it is so simple and so practical. Um, I, oh, you know, sometimes I, this, this, this seems earth shattering to some people. I'll say, why don't you leave some, some time for questions and answers? And honest, I swear people go, oh no, we can't do that. You know, that, that they just don't trust people. So they just keep talking or they'll say, yeah, we'll do that. But they keep talking because they figure that if I'm the leader and I keep talking, somehow something good's going to happen because I'm a leader. And, and when, they, when I say, all right, but let's, let's just slow it down. Are you willing to try that? What if you just left time for one question or five minutes for questions? So what I try to do is say, look, make it safe for you and for them. I mean, so I'm not... if. You know, I might think, well, you know, you really ought to have like an hour of people really having back and forth. But I, I know my client is just would go apoplectic. I mean, they just would, you know, couldn't, I'd say, all right, what if we take five minutes? I really want something that's safe for my client and safe for those other people. Um, in fact, I'll give you an example I wasn't involved in that I loved. Um, the guy was head of a finance department in a, a major corporation. And he'd come up with this idea to improve quality. This was a number of years ago. And so he went, he bypassed managers and supervisors and went right to the employees and said, hey, here's what we're going to do. And the managers and, and supervisors were really upset about it. And just, you know, and they were they could ruin the whole thing. So he did something brilliant. He and I had nothing, to, I was just there giving a speech. So I'm just sitting there watching this. And he gave all the managers before the meeting, he gave them index cards, like two or three index cards, and say, I would like you to, to write down your reactions or questions or comments about this change that I just instituted and keep it anonymous. And I want to see, I'll address them at our meeting on Monday. So he walks into the meeting. There's maybe 70 managers, supervisors there. He walk, He didn't reduce them to bullet points on PowerPoint which would be a common thing to do. There's these five major themes. He brought the stack of cards in. I mean, just that had kind of a face validity, if you will. And he started going through the cards and he would say, you know, that's a really good question. A lot of you ask it and I hadn't thought of that. Here's what I'm going to do. Or he'd say, this is a big concern for some people. I don't agree with you. Here's why. Well, I'm sitting there on the sidelines watching this and within 15 minutes, People are raising their hands and going, Bill, what about such and so? And suddenly within five minutes, they didn't need the cards anymore. They're having a conversation about this, you know, and all he did was spend $2 on a box on some index cards. I mean, it was really simple. And oh, the other brilliant thing he did, he said, get them to my office, your comments two days before the meeting. So it allowed him to react to these things before the meeting.
Mm-hmm. And if there's some stuff he didn't want to cover, he didn't have to do that. But he, he proved himself that this guy is a trustworthy guy. So people would open up and they had a really productive conversation. And it, they, didn't have, they didn't need a consultant to help them do that. They just did it. So, so I love that. And I want to ask you one final question because we're, we're running up against the end of our, uh, of our episode. Time just flew on this, huh? Yeah. Um, it, I looked up and I was like, oh my God, wow, we're almost done here. But um, so I have one last question I want to ask you. And, and I think it ties a lot of this stuff together. Yeah. Um, so what we've been talking about here is about uh, moving from resistance to support. We've been talking about getting people aligned. We've been talking about uh, injecting some life into projects and, and generating more engagement and all of these sorts of mm-hmm. things. So I want to, I want to end on the note of talking directly to leaders and, mm-hmm. and asking a question that some leaders might be, uh, if there's leaders listening to this podcast right now, which I know there are some, obviously, um, the question is, how do you get traction when you're, when it feels like such a struggle to get traction, right? You've got a leader that's saying, why can't I get people to see how flippant important this? Why can't I get them to get on board? Why can't I get them aligned? And you've talked about some examples and you've talked about some of the reasons why people support us and why they resist us. So you've got leaders that are listening to say, okay, well, I've communicated it. I've tried to build, uh, get, look for an emotional reaction and and try to maybe seize on opportunities where I see I might be able to get some of that through engagement. And, and I feel like I've built an organization of trust, but I just can't seem to get people to be as excited or on board about this thing as I think this project is. I know it needs to move forward. I need my people on board. I need them not to be on board, but proactively on board. At the core of everything you're talking about here, you talked about the, the example with the index cards, you talked about, you know, any of these examples, there's something at the core there that I think encapsulates this whole level one, level two, level three. Oh yeah. Can you tell me what you think that is? Like, what's the thing that helps leaders to get projects unstuck, to, to maintain uh. energy, to move, keep things moving forward? Like, what is that? And I'm not asking for a silver bullet, but just more like the, the overarching category. What's that thing that they need? People need information they can trust and they need it early. Sometimes we start our projects after we've figured out this is what we need to do. And we've worked out the details. The project needs to start before then. So people are going, whoa, people need to feel a sense of urgency. They, and that's getting people involved at level two. It's that, that emotional, wow. And it could be urgency like this is a real threat to our organization or this is a real opportunity, but people get it. So then when you say, all right, here's what we're thinking of doing, they can go, oh, that makes sense. Or wait a minute, I don't think that's the best way to go. Uh, and it's On one hand, it's really simple. On the other hand, it just gets, we're so busy that we think, oh, we'll just, we'll start with, we got a crisis. Uh, we're going to start with this project and you leaving people out of the loop for no good reason other than we're really busy. And it, it actually cuts out headaches if you just, you know, do that. So, and you can just ask people, Hey, you take another, take a a project you've already done and say, all right, so what did we do wrong as leaders? I mean, that question is not asked very much. And then, yeah. yeah. And then for the leader, sit on your hands and listen. You know, the tendency is to say, you know, you ask a question and I'm the leader and 10 minutes later, I'm still giving a response to something. You know, it's just, no, shut up and listen. Don't solve the problem. Find out and say, well, all right. So, so Jeff said that, you know, this was all a surprise to us. 
Was this big change a big surprise to others here too? And, and our people go, oh yeah, yeah. You start learning, you know, and you, you learn best if you keep your mouth shut. Yeah, I love yeah. it. And another <sighs> another thing that I think that's embedded in there, uh, sort of unspoken. You 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 said it, but you didn't say the exact words. But I think ownership is a big piece here. Oh, giving it's your huge. team ownership, and that comes from the trust, right? You're talking about trust being such a critical part here. People want information they can trust but they also want to get involved. They feel that urgency yes. when they take a sense of ownership and without trust, they're not going to take ownership. But if they, if they feel a sense of trust in their leadership, if they feel a sense of trust with one another and they, they feel a sense of, you know, um, excitement about what their organization is about, they can take ownership and that then allows them to, to get that emotional response and, and to, to help move those projects forward. And I, I love what you're talking about, about involving people early. I'm a huge advocate for that. I think, when in doubt, err on the side of transparency and like yes. bring people into the fold. You're going to get more information early on. You're going to get more perspectives and it's just going to give you a more well-rounded way of approaching things. And I think what gets in our way is the ego is I'm a leader. <clears throat> I have to make the decision and therefore everyone should listen to my perspective because I'm brilliant. And, um, and I think, you know, you've really, you've posed a lot of things here to think about today. Uh, I love your level one, level two, level three uh, thinking on that. I, I love the, uh, the seizing of the moments of possibility. So I think there's a lot in here that um, that's really worth for people that are in leadership positions to kind of go back over and, and listen back through. So I think we're, uh, we're at about time, but I want to give you a chance at the end of the show uh, to shamelessly promote yourself. If you're working okay. on something, if I know you just have a book came out, yeah. I want to let, you know, tell people where they can go and be social with you, where they can learn about you, they can hire you, whatever. Now is your time to unabashedly Super. promote yourself. Unabashedly yeah. fanfares. Yes. Um, I, the book that just came out uh, is called seizing moments of possibility ways to trigger energy and forward momentum on your ideas and plans. And it's a short book. It's 70 pages, I think. And it's free. By the way, I have it as an ebook free on my website. You can also buy it on Amazon and, and it's gonna, there's gonna be an audio version simply because people said, hey, we wanna have paperbacks and we wanna have audio. But my, my goal here was to have a free book that people could use right now. So it's not a sales gimmick. There's no sales funnel hooked up to this. And each chapter is like, how do, how do I bring to life the very things that you and I are talking about? Uh, and the first thing, by the way, is not to jump into some action. The first thing is to follow the, the wise advice of Yogi Berra, uh, who was a philosopher. I hear he also played baseball, too, uh, that uh, he would say, you can observe a lot just by watching. And so I'll say to leaders and to myself, just watch what's going on. See how people interact. When you have a presentation, does anybody say anything? Do you always get the yes men, yes women talk, you know, that kind of, so it starts there and it has activities. And so all you have to do is go to Rick Maurer and I'll spell that, but rickmauer.com and, you know, you'll see it. And also my, my email is Rick at Rick Maurer. I'm also on LinkedIn. There's hardly any other Rick Maurer. So if you just do Rick Maurer, you don't need any of the secret kind of stuff that they do on LinkedIn, you'll find me. Um, and uh, it's Maurer is M-A-U-R-E-R. -E so it's rickmauer.com. And, and I'll put all that in the show notes, by the way. So perfect. Thank you. Whatever your po favorite podcast app is, you'll be able to just swipe and slide to the show notes and then just click the links. If you want to get Super. in touch with Rick, if you want to go download the book for free, which I encourage um, and, uh, and check out what Rick's working on. So Rick, thank you so much for coming on and being a guest on shareable uh, talking through all of this important information. Leaders can never get enough good advice, I think. And um, mm -hmm. it's, it's a major passion of mine. So I'm glad that uh, you were able to come onto the show and chat with me for a little bit about uh, change, making things move forward and, and putting some batteries into your organization. So Thank you. So much I appreciate it. On. 
Yeah. Sure thing. Episode. You covered lots of stuff. And um, I think that's the sort of thing that people should, uh, should, should be thankful that they have such good information that they can tell others about, which I guess would make this podcast shareable. Wait, don't leave. If you've never listened to my fancy outro, do it just once for me, please. Okay. If you enjoy shareable and you find it valuable, there's a few ways that you can support the show. One, you can share it on social media, which I strongly encourage. I mean, it's literally the name of the show, Shareable. Two, you can review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Overcast user, as many of my listeners are, make sure to click that star button on the episodes that you like. The third way that you can support the show is by blogging about it or discussing it on your own podcast or even by making a YouTube video where you talk about one of the episodes. And then the final way that you can support the show is by supporting it directly on Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. Now, before I let you go, I want to tell you about one other thing. You see, Shareable is just one of many projects that I'm working on at any given time. I've got another podcast called Rogue. I do a live streaming show every week called The Heroic Council. I've got a blog where I release a blog post twice a week. And if you're looking to keep up with all sorts of different content that can help you grow and become a superhero in life, I want you to check out jeffgibber.me. That's where I list all of my current projects and projects that are coming up in the future, including my forthcoming book, The Lovable Leader. It would mean a lot to me if you could go and check out some of the other things I've worked on because I put just as much of my heart into those projects as I do into Shareable. Thank you so much for being a listener. Thank you for being a supporter. And I hope to see you here on the next episode of Shareable.